0: Hello. Good morning. All right. So our scripture reading this morning is uh, from 1 Peter, uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. It's from the NASB. In this you greatly rejoice, even though, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the uh, revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, all things are possible with you. You can do the impossible. And we ask, I ask this morning that you would do the impossible in us. Give us a new way to see the hard things in life, a new way to see our suffering, a way that turns our default reactions upon their heads. Lord, may we be able, as we walk away from here, to say the same as Peter, to say the same as Paul, To say the same as all these who have believed upon the gospel and the scripture, that our suffering is not loss but gain, is not sorrowful but brings joy. Lord, may we see why that's the case. And may you change the game for us as we consider our suffering this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What comes to mind... When you hear the term game changer, game changer, what do you think of? Maybe it's an invention that comes to mind, or perhaps it's an exceptionally gifted person who's a game changer, or a specific event in history. Here's a moment in time that was quite literally a game changer. It was November 30th, 1876. 1876. It was the day of the Yale-Princeton annual football game. Yale's quarterback is about to be tackled for a loss, but before he goes down, he makes a forward pass. That forward pass is caught for a Yale touchdown, and the Princeton sideline erupts in protest. That's not part of the game. The referee on that day settled the matter, By appealing to an unbiased authority, he flipped a coin. And on the basis of a coin toss, the forward pass was allowed to stand. It took years to catch on, but the forward pass developed into a literal game changer for the sport of football. It was the forward pass that brought a young man from Evergreen, Alabama, to be a wide receiver for Paul Bear Bryant, and in Bryant Hall, room 301, to hear and understand the gospel for the first time. That receiver won two national championships, but more importantly, Jesus won his heart while he was here at the university. That receiver received Christ as he believed the gospel there in Bryant Hall, and that receiver went on to have a son who he named Keith, Junior, KJ. That receiver was my father. He raised me. He raised me to know and love the Savior he came to know and love here as a wide receiver at the university. So, I guess you could say that the game-changing forward pass was indirectly game-changing for my life as well. It's amazing that for someone who can't catch... How deeply my life has been impacted by the invention of the forward pass. It's amazing that the course of one's life could hang upon the throw of a ball or the flip of a coin. But that's why the Bible gives us this reassuring news. God is in control of all such things. The flight of a bird from a bush, the fall of a hair from your head, the roll of the dice in the lap... God leaves nothing to chance in his universe, even the small things, because, like the throw of a ball or the toss of a coin, anything can be game-changing. Here is one more example of a game-changer, one that goes a bit deeper and touches upon the heart. Suppose you have two men who work at a very tedious job, They each sit in a room by themselves and work on a computer doing something like macro data refinement. They take raw data, they take the numbers, and they sort them. The work's tedious, it's repetitive, and perhaps they don't even understand what they're contributing to in the end. They never get to see the end results. But where one man is told he will be receiving $25,000 a year for his work, The other man is told he will be receiving $2.5 million a year for his work. That's a game changer, folks. It's the exact same work, but for one man, he will come into work very bored and he will complain. He'll complain about his work to his family, to his friends. It's just so tedious. He'll be sick of the daily grind, he'll hate going into the office. But for the other man, he will come into work with a smile on his face. He will feel value. He, he will feel valuable and his work will feel valuable. It must be important to be paid so much. His work feels valuable, and therefore everything is full of meaning. He delights in his daily routine. He loves the clickety-clack of the computer and and Uh, putting the numbers together. He he never complains to his friends, to his family. It's a joy every time he enters into the office. Why? Because this man has a game-changing motivation to the tune of $2.5 million a year. Friends, what if there was a game-changing motivation that you are missing out on? What if there was a game changer that could turn on its head the way you respond to suffering, to the bad things in life? One that transforms your natural despair in difficult times into supernatural joy. Wouldn't you want to know about it? Wouldn't you want that game changer in your life? Of course you would. And God is showing you his kindness this morning by not just telling you that such a game changer exists, but by putting that game changer within your reach. All you need to do this morning is embrace it, that it's good, that it's true. God offers to each of us a game changer for our trials. This is his game changer for our suffering. Let's see what that is. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Beginning in verse 6, verse 6 says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though you're suffering right now. What's the the this of verse 6? What's that referring to? Remember, whenever we're reading the Bible, context Is king. The this in verse 6 is referring back to this great salvation that he has unpacked for us in the previous five verses. We talked about those last week. If you weren't here last Sunday, I'm going to give you a one-sentence summary of the whole sermon. Uh, Here's what we saw last week in verses 1 through 5. We saw that all of God is working to save all of us. All of God is working to save all that we are. The greatness of God's commitment to save us should overwhelm our hearts with joy and gratitude. This is why Peter says, in this, this great salvation, in this you greatly rejoice even though you're suffering right now. The thing that changes the game for us is a fuller understanding of what God has done for us in Christ. When we see it, when our hearts really believe it, we can't help but to rejoice. Our response will be like the man who thought he was working for $25,000 a year, but then is told, no, you're getting $2.5 million a year for this work. Wow, I mean, that would change our attitude, wouldn't it? In a moment, the, the things that would trouble you and bother you and get on your nerves, instantly you'd be able to handle those things better. (laughs) Wouldn't you? Of course you would. If the news of a $2.5 million paycheck would change your outlook, God gives you something much, much better here than money. He tells you about a salvation in which he has done it all, he has paid it all for you. He has chosen you. We saw that in verse 1. He has loved you. He has called you out of the world. He's cleansed you with the blood of Christ. Jesus takes on the punishment, do you, for your disobedience, for your disordered life. And in exchange, He offers you His perfect obedience. His perfect standing before God can be yours. Our response to that game-changing discovery is like the man who stumbled upon a treasure hidden in a field. And in his joy, he goes and gladly sells all that he has in order to buy that field and rightly claim that treasure as his. The treasure of Christ comes with this game-changing motivation, a joy rooted in such a great salvation. That's the starting point. Here is how it changes the game when we deal with our suffering. Look at verses six and seven. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, here's the first thing I want you to see in these verses. God's game changer transforms us into exiles who suffer joyfully. God's game changer transforms us into exiles who suffer joyfully. It's already a mind shifting truth to realize that you're in exile here. You're a pilgrim. You're just passing through. You're meant to be in the world, but not of the world. You don't belong to this world. You belong to another world, to a better country. This place isn't your real home. That truth alone should have a game changing effect on you mentally, your perspective, how you see life in the world. But there's more than that. You're to be an exile here who suffers joyfully. You're different already, Christian, as a Christian, but your response to suffering should be another thing that radically distinguishes you from the rest of the world. The world's natural response to suffering are things like bitterness, why me, self-pity, woe is me, a desire for revenge, I'm going to get back at the one who hurt me. All those things are natural responses. And all those things will be our natural responses as well unless we find a game-changing motivation unless we find a game-changing reality that rewires our heart's natural responses. The good news is that such a game-changer does exist. It does exist. God has given it to us. He tells us here what it is. And that's the second thing I want you to see. God's game-changer transforms our suffering into proof of our faith. God's game changer transforms our suffering into precious proof of our faith. Let's see that in verses 6 and 7. Again, you're suffering, verse 6. Why? Verse 7, so that the proof of your faith be more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found. God promises us a payoff here. He promises us a payoff that transforms our hard times and our trials into something precious and desirable. More desirable than gold. It's like the man who realizes that all of his slaving away at work, at the computer, is going to pay him millions a year. All of a sudden, his daily trials don't feel so bad. They don't feel so hard. Why? Because they're producing something he desires more. They're producing something that he values more. The paycheck is worth all the pains. The paycheck transforms the pains into something not that bad, into something that's very bearable. Why? Because the paycheck is so much greater than the toil is difficult. What's the promised paycheck in verse 7? It is precious proof. Precious proof that your faith is real. When we make it through times of suffering by trusting in Jesus, it's like you've just been given gold. There it is. Precious proof, more to be treasured than gold. It's been refined like gold in the fire of affliction. And it's proof that you really do trust Jesus. He really did make a difference in how you handled that bad situation. In how you handled that loss of a loved one. He really did make the difference. He really did give you joy when it felt like joy was impossible. He really did make you feel in your distress a sense of His fellowship in your suffering. I'll ask you, how much would you be willing to suffer if the paycheck at the end was proof that you really do belong to God? how much would you be willing to suffer? What trials would you be willing to endure if the payoff in the end was proof positive that your faith was authentic, that Christ in you is an undeniable reality? How much would you be willing to suffer? Peter says in verse 7 that this kind of proof is more valuable than gold. The trials and tribulations of life can give us something more precious than the keys to Fort Knox and to all the gold we have on reserve. This brings a new calculus to life. Our trials can be better for us than our triumphs. Our hardships better than money in the bank. This is a game changer, isn't it? The game changer here is that God transforms our trials into precious proof of the genuineness of our faith. Into precious proof that the gospel really has changed us. Jesus proves himself real in our hearts in in our moments of greatest distress. One of my favorite illustrations of this, and you may have heard it before, you will hear it again, is from the life of John G. Patton. He's a Scottish missionary to the South Pacific Islands when the people were literally cannibals. Uh, One of my nephews is named Patton after John G. Patton. Patton records this in his autobiography. He, He says one night he was on the run for his life again. This happens over and over again in his book. He's on the run for his life, and he climbs up a tree. And as an old man now, he's writing his autobiography reflecting on this, And this is what he says. He says, "'The hours I spent there in that tree live all before me as if they were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yell of the cannibals. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul.'" Then when the midnight moon flickered among those chestnut leaves, and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus, alone yet not alone. If it be to the glory of my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship, If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend who will not fail you then? Have you? Have you a friend who will not fail you then? You'll have that friend and you'll have the proof, Peter says, When you go through various trials, and that is a precious thing. The proof is far more valuable than whatever pains you took to get it. God can transform whatever trial you're going through into something far more valuable. Precious proof of your faith. That's the second thing I want you to see. Here's a third, which is also in verse 7. God's game changer transforms our suffering into our praise at the king's return. God's game changer transforms our suffering into our praise at the king's return. Let's look at that in verse 7. Why are we suffering? So that the proof of your faith be more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's game-changing when we no longer see hardships as pointless evils that come into our lives. If you're here this morning and you're an atheist, an agnostic, a materialist, and naturalist, any of the above, how do you see your bad circumstances? You can only see it as a bit of bad luck, right? If the universe is just the product of random chance, then all the bad things that happen to you are just random chance as well. They're just bad luck. There's no point. There's no purpose. You ought to wallow in self-pity, and you do. When bad things happen, when the cancer diagnosis falls in your lap, because the universe randomly dealt to you a bad genetic hand. Some people win the genetic lo- lottery, it said, and look, I got scoliosis and an overbite. I mean, it's, that's, the way it, that's the way you feel as an atheist. It's all just chance for you. What more is there to say? Christianity says there is a lot more to say. Christianity says that there is a truth, a game-changing reality, one that transforms our trials, our hardships, our distresses into praise and glory and honor at the end of history. This is a truth that enables us to say with Paul, now I rejoice in my suffering. To say with James, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. To say with the Hebrew Christians, they accepted with joy the plundering of their property, knowing that they had a better possession and an abiding one. Believing the gospel of Jesus Christ changes the game when it comes to suffering. It has the power to turn our emotional response to suffering on its head. Like Jesus said, when people persecute you and insult you, stab you in the back, say all kinds of evil against you because of me, you're not cursed. It's turned on its head. You're blessed. Blessed are you. Rejoice and be glad when those bad things happen, for great is your reward in heaven. Praise, glory, and honor are coming your way. Remember, the disciples left the beating, giving thanks with grateful hearts that they were considered worthy to suffer shame for Jesus' name. Great is your reward in heaven. When creation's king returns to set all things right, one word from the king, just one well done from Jesus, and we will say, Every trial's been worth it. I never made a sacrifice that hasn't been abundantly repaid by Jesus. I'll never forget a conversation I once had with uh, an Englishman, uh, Tim Chester. We were in Sheffield, England, sitting in his front room, a terraced house, so up a a hill, small room, sipping cups of tea. And he said this to me. He said, there will always be a price to pay ...for doing gospel ministry. There will always be a price to pay for doing gospel ministry. He was right. There is. But, he said, when you see it in that light... ...it always feels like a price worth paying. However bad the thing is... ...this is the price I have to pay to serve Jesus. It is worth it. It feels light in comparison. Leaving family... ...leaving all your support systems behind is a big deal, but it will feel much, much smaller when you see it as the price you're paying to do gospel ministry. Reducing all you have in the world to what you can carry on a plane feels like a big sacrifice until you see it this way. I'm doing this for Jesus, and Jesus is too good not to abundantly repay. God will transform our suffering into our praise, our glory, our honor at Christ's return. That's the third thing I want you to see. Here's the fourth and final it's in verses eight and nine. It's this God's game changer is a joyful faith which saves our souls. God's game changer is a joyful faith which saves our souls. Look at verses eight and nine. Verse eight says, and though you have not seen him, Jesus, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The common thread between verses eight and nine, really verse seven as well, is faith faith. It's easier to see that in the original Greek than it is to see in English. In English, when it's a noun, we use the word faith. When it's a verb, we say what? Believe. Two words that look very different, but it's the same. In Greek, the noun and the verb is the exact same with a different ending on it. So it's obvious. Uh, He's talking about faith in every verse. Uh, It's really obvious to the original hearers that Peter is highlighting the importance of faith. So we need to ask ourselves, what is faith and why is it important? The writer of Hebrews defines faith like this. Hebrews 11:1 says, "Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen." In one sense, we all live by faith. We all live based on the convictions of things we haven't seen for ourselves. Every person receives most of what they accept as true on the basis of believing the word of some authority. I haven't myself seen an atom, a proton, a neutron, but I believe they exist on the basis of scientific authority. I'm entitled to believe in the existence of atoms, even though none of my teachers who taught me about atoms, have ever seen one. Most scientists alive have never examined things down to the atomic level. They're also receiving their information based on authority. People who told them, just like me. Faith is the conviction of things we don't see for ourselves, but receive on the basis of authority. Why is that important? Because misplaced faith can have dire consequences. Look ahead with me to one verse in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 11 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, as exiles, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Peter says there are desires, natural fleshly desires, that wage war against your soul. That are destructive to you at your most fundamental level. But what if you believe that all your natural desires should be indulged? What if you've been taught on the basis of some authority that the heart wants what the heart wants. And you just got to go with it. That's a good thing. You've received by faith from an authority that it's wrong and repressive for me not to act out my desires. What you have in that case is a misplaced faith, a misplaced faith that elevates your desires, your lust, to the ultimate place in your heart, to God's place in your heart. And now everything else must bow and give way to those desires. In that moment, those desires have become my functional God. I listen to them with no regard for God's will or design. And in time, if I continue to do this in time, I may even reinterpret my identity through those desires. But all the while, my treason against God and his design is doing damage to my soul. It's waging war against my soul. I may not recognize it. I may not see it. But I do know I'm not really happy. I'm not really satisfied. But my faith in my desires tells me what's the answer. Go deeper still. Pursue it still more. And that wages war against my soul. The war goes on and on. In contrast to this, look again at verses 8 8. And 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. If misplaced faith in my desires damages my soul, then a well-placed faith in Christ obtains salvation, the salvation of my soul. Faith put in the proper place based upon ultimate authority, God's authority, produces this. Verse 8, it produces joy. Joy inexpressible and the salvation of our souls. Verse 9. We have the incredible joy here recently to see several atheists through their time here at ABC to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Incredible. I'm I'm so excited. I'm so thankful to the Lord. One of the things I've told them and their own experience confirmed was that moment when the light comes on, when you realize not only is all this stuff about Jesus good, but it's true, and I believe it's true for myself, that moment, they confirmed, was one of profound joy, but I warned them, In advance, it will be quickly followed, often quickly followed, by an oh no. This changes everything. All my life now has to get in line with a truth that is this massive. I'll say the same thing to you today. If you're here today just exploring what it means to believe... Maybe you felt the warfare of your own desires in your heart, and you're looking now for something bigger, something better, a bigger and better source of joy. You're looking for something truly game-changing. If that's you, I'm so glad you're here. You're on a journey, a journey that takes time. We won't rush you or try to manipulate you in any way. ABC is a safe place for you to ask your questions and discover Jesus because we recognize this is a process. You're on a journey, but we do want you to come to this great discovery in the end. We want everyone to discover this great game changer. We want you to come to this place and say, though you have not seen him, You love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, I pray that every heart here would be responding with faith. May we embrace such a great king, such a great game changer, you alone can change the way we respond to suffering. You alone can turn tragedy into joy. You alone can turn on its head our natural responses to hard things in life. Lord, I pray that you would write these truths upon our hearts, that we'd all be believing them afresh and anew today. If we're questioning whether we really believe based upon how we've responded in the past to bad things. If we're questioning, Lord, may our faith uh, in you be renewed in a, fresh, uh, in a fresh way today. May we embrace Christ like never before. Uh, but perhaps, Lord, there's also someone here who needs to embrace Christ for the first time. Lord, I pray that they would see in Jesus a Savior who is, whose arms are extended to them, who offers them all they were trying to accomplish Uh, but much, much better. Or may we cease trying to be our own Savior, and may we look to the one who truly is the Savior and King of all. May we embrace Christ today and find a joy in Him that is inexpressible and be filled with Your glory. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name for His glory. Amen.